Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Grace. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And this, today's program is a partnership with the Melanoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And our program is titled People of Color Living with Skin Cancer. And this is a very important topic, and we're delighted to have so many of you on the call today. And today's program is supported by Sanofi, Genzyme, and Regeneron, and I'd really like to thank them for their support of this really very important program. Now, we have on the program today over 155 participants, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from the Philippines, Canada, and the United Kingdom. So it's actually a global call as well. And um, you're clearly a group of information seekers who've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I have a few questions I'd like to ask all of you. And for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to rate your answers to them. And we're doing this because we want to be sure that we are tailoring our programs to best meet your needs. So by asking these questions, it gives us a sense of what you know before the program starts. So I'm going to start with on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the types of skin cancers in people of color and new treatment approaches. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the importance of regular visits to the dermatologist to check your skin and early detection of skin cancer for people of color. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand how to care for skin during cancer treatments, including sun and wind safety recommendations for people of color. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand how to manage treatment side effects, toxicities, discomfort and pain of skin cancer in people of color. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. I understand the role of clinical trials for skin cancer in people of color. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I just want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. It really helps us, again, as we plan our programs in 2022. Um, and now it's really my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Cutaneous Cancers, Medical Oncology, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing review of types of skin cancers in people of color, the importance of early detection of skin cancer, 
and tips for caring for your skin, including sun and wind safety tips. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. It's uh, my honor and privilege to be with you today and to join uh, uh, my this August faculty to discuss this very important talk, topic. I want to uh, start off by dispelling a myth, and, and uh, this is something I hear from my own patients in my own practice, uh, those patients uh, of, of people who have darker pigmentation in their skin or people of color, and there's a misconception that it's a not-me thing. So, you know, I... Uh, I, I'm not susceptible to to the, the skin cancers because skin cancers are driven by sun exposure, and and to some extent that is true. But uh, skin is a organ upon itself; it is made up of multiple different cells, and uh, and not all the all the parts of the skin are uh, are driven uh, by sun exposure. So it is yes, it is possible to have skin cancers come up uh, independent of sun exposure. There are some specific subsets, even of melanoma. So melanoma is a type of skin cancer well known to be driven by sun exposure, but there are subsets of melanomas which are not driven by sun and which can occur in people of color. And uh, they have a name. There's a type of melanoma called aqual or aqual indigenous type. These are the type of melanomas that occur in areas that are not sun exposed. They're driven by other factors, and they tend to occur in places like under the nails, in the nail beds, uh, soles of feet, palms of hand, and so. Uh, and under the microscope, they look uh, they, they look and are classified as melanoma, but they have a distinct biology. And uh, and although they're called melanoma, they're not necessarily driven by sun exposure. And so, yes, it is possible uh, for people of color to develop melanoma. That's one of the misconceptions uh, uh, that people have, and I want to dispel that right here and now. There are other types of melanoma which can occur in, from internal organs and, and may not be 100% relevant to our discussion here today, but nevertheless, they can occur in what we call the wet areas of the body, inside your sort of things like your, your mouth or your uh, genital urinary tract, things like that, they are also classified as melanoma. And so some people are surprised that they can get this. It's a complete different category of melanoma. It is not driven by sun exposure. Uh, and, uh, and yes, you can develop these. These are not skin, however. And I'll just uh, leave it where it is right now and move on. There are other situations in which you can have skin malignancies. I mentioned that skin is an organ is comprised of multiple cells. Melanocytes, from which melanoma come from, are just one component of it. There are skin cells called keratinocytes. There are nerve cells and, uh, uh, and, and, and cells that have to do with your appendages, like, uh, like uh, sweat glands and hair follicles, all of which are susceptible to being malignant. These are, however, thankfully, uncommon. However, they can develop. Uh, People of color are also susceptible to risk factors that may drive skin uh, to, to, uh, uh, to be abnormal and sometimes to become malignant. And so we have to pay attention to situations which we have ongoing inflammation, in situations which we have autoimmune diseases, in people who have solid organ transplants or on immunosuppression. 
uh, I'm not saying these are all going to universally give people skin cancers, but they're risk factors which are deserving of attention and also means that that individual has to have a, a detection plan, usually with, uh, with bringing in other uh, healthcare providers such as dermatologists, and Dr. Khan will speak to that as the next speaker after me. Um, uh, I think the, uh, the, the second thing I want to really, really leave you with is that early detection is important. Luckily for us, skin is an organ that we can look at and have access to. And uh, what I tell all my patients, whether they are people of color or not, is that any change in the skin that is ongoing, that is persistent, that results in symptoms, be it pain or numbness, uh, that shows bleeding, uh, all are deserving of attention. This is especially true as we are now emerging out of this COVID pandemic and, uh, and in the past where there was some hesitation in leaving the house and getting care, I think an ongoing lesion that you've noticed and is problematic deserves to be looked at. And that's the second message. To make life easier for everyone in this time and age of cell phones and, and, and cameras, it's, you know, I think it's important that uh, you can document this yourself because for me as an oncologist, skin lesions that change be it in characteristic, in color, in size, in, in inflammatory uh, uh, signs and bleeding. The change is what I'm very interested in. And, in, and change just means that these are things that occur over time. So therefore, taking pictures of the skin lesion, very important. Now, even in this day and age of cameras, I want to uh, impart upon you some good practices. Because we're looking at changes in also things like pigmentation, uh, be it uh, uh, loss of pigmentation or gain in, in sort of inflammatory sort of uh, changes, uh, it's important to have this, a regular source of light when you document this. So I tell folks maybe come up against a, a, a sunlight or a window, take it in the same sort of conditions so we can get a good sense of, uh, of the sort of changes and the color and the pigmentation. So as I draw to a close, the two messages are uh, uh, do not have the misconception that, uh, that uh, uh, people of color are totally immune to skin cancers. Uh, yes, you are susceptible. Correct that it is not driven by the same factors driven by people of lighter pigmentation, but very deserving of attention nevertheless. And the second point I want to leave you with as I close is to engage with the healthcare providers. Have them look at it and to, to really uh, be self-empowered to take pictures of things on your own skin and follow it over time. And certainly things that are changing are deserving of attention. I'll leave you with that, and, and we'll pass you back to, uh, uh, to Dr. Mesner and, and my other colleagues who are going to be on the call. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Dr. Wong. That was really outstanding, really uh, setting the stage for today's program. Just a wonderful presentation and really, um, I think, has everyone's attention now in terms of the, how important this is um, in terms of um, noticing any skin changes and also working closely with the dermatologist. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Shahir Khan. And Dr. Khan is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center, New York Presbyterian Columbia University, Irvine, Irving Medical Center. And Dr. Khan will be addressing the role of the dermatologist, regular visits to the dermatologist to check your skin, to detect skin cancer early, and how skin cancer is treated. 
It's nearly my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Khan. Thanks so much, Dr. Mesmer, and thanks, Dr. Wong, um, for your um, for your great session as well. Um, and thank you to everybody for attending. Um, so yeah, so I think you know to, to piggyback off of um, Dr. Wong's uh, comment regarding um, it's checking your own skin and also and being empowered to document that. Um, you know, I think um, I wanted to just spend a few moments talking about the importance of the dermatologist in all of this. Um, Obviously, um, when you're uh, uh, examining yourself and noticing things that might be of concern, um, it's difficult to know which um, lesions or which spots may be um, something totally normal or which things may need to be worked up further. And um, I think you know that, um, in addition to the trained eyes of the dermatologist or where their um, their specialty really comes into play and is helpful. So obviously they've undergone a tremendous amount of training to um, understand what constitutes um, a risky lesion, what constitutes something of concern versus something that's totally benign. Um, and uh, they use that whenever they're examining you, whenever they're um, looking at a specific lesion. Um, they have special tools that they can also use to assess lesions and what what characteristics it might have, um, special things like dermatoscopes, which can look at lesions in a very close way. Um, they can also utilize um, uh, imaging, uh, photographic imaging uh, technologies to, to look at different areas of the body. Um, and uh, recently, they've also been using um, kind of AI mechanisms to help understand the risk profile of certain um, spots or lesions. Um, and then, you know, uh, of course, um, you know, doing self-skin exams is important, but um, they can also um, do very thorough assessments of the body, both the sun-bearing parts of the skin and also other parts of the body that um, may not be as closely monitored because they're not sun-exposed. Um, and that includes, you know, the palms and the soles, the nails, um, the groin, um, and what we call the mucosal surfaces or the inside of your mouth, for example. And so I think, um, you know, their expertise in, in monitoring these areas is really, really helpful um, and, um, and is the kind of ultimate form of, of uh, screening that can be performed. Um, you know, obviously, if there's a specific area that that is of concern, getting in to see the dermatologist is important. Um, but then depending on what they find, they may also recommend um, certain intervals in which um, you should come back. Um, and that's important because as Dr. Wong was saying, sometimes we notice um, spots or lesions that may be um, of concern or uh, there may be kind of uh, different options upon, uh, that it could potentially be. And the only way to really assess it is to monitor it over time. And so um, following up with the dermatologist at a regular interval, sometimes they'll set it at more frequent intervals, um, you know, around every three months, or they may say that it needs to be um, longer intervals up to a year, uh, but then um, continuing to follow up with the dermatologist um, during those intervals to, to monitor those areas or to just continue watching for new areas um, is important. Um, 
So uh, what if they do find something um, uh, that they're concerned for or that they're suspicious of or that is um, a diagnosed as a skin cancer? Um, and, and so obviously, you know, the treatment of that is, is a nuanced question and it depends um, on exactly what the characteristics are. But in general, with skin cancers, um, our, um, our highest priority when, when a cancer is diagnosed is to, to cure the person of the cancer. And most frequently, that's done through um, surgical removal of the cancer, um, most commonly by the dermatologist. And that can encompass a few different techniques. You know, they can do, um, uh, they can freeze it, they can use other technologies, they can do what's called a, a stage surgery where they take um, slices of the tumor off and assess whether they've been able to remove all of it. Um, or they can do just a, a, an excision of the area around the tumor um, if they're confident that they can remove it all. Um, once they do that removal or that biopsy, you know, they'll send the specimen to a pathologist who will look at it under a microscope and will um, determine certain characteristics um, that can, um, you know, suggest um, different risk profile of the cancer as well as confirm what exactly it is that we're dealing with. Um, and so once that's been done, um, the tumor can be um, uh, given um, a stage um, based on certain systems that we use that incorporate certain characteristics that the tumor might have that the pathologist is looking at. Um, and uh, then usually the dermatologists will follow up with you to discuss the results of that. Um, if it's thought that the lesion is, you know, what we call an early stage or there's a very good chance that it's been removed and doesn't have um, a high chance of, of growing or, or spreading to other places, that maybe that's all that's needed, and then the dermatologist would just continue to follow you. Um, if there are certain characteristics that increase the concern for um, cancer that might be present in the region of where the cancer was found or potentially in other places of the body, they may recommend doing other procedures, including sampling of the lymph nodes of the area or potentially imaging to, to further assess. Um, uh, and then, you know, in certain, in certain patients, um, the skin cancer may be in a location or it may have grown to a degree that makes surgery difficult. Um, in that case, um, radiation therapy can also be considered. Um, finally, you know, if there is, um, if there is concern um, that the disease is, is um, advanced within the region or in other places of the body, or um, there's a high risk of the cancer coming back based on certain characteristics, um, the, the dermatologist may have you see um, a medical oncologist who, dis who will discuss uh, potential um, treatments that go throughout the entire body or what we call systemic treatment. Um, and again, that can be used to try to treat cancers that can't be removed by surgery or radiation or to try to reduce the risk um, of a cancer that is removed but has a high risk of coming back. Um, I'm not gonna talk about the specific types of treatments necessarily. I think um, some of my colleagues will be reviewing that, but you know, uh, depending on the disease, there can be different classes of treatments that are used. Um, so um, for example, in melanoma, um, 
some of the treatments that are used are what we call immunotherapies that harness the immune system to try to attack and kill the cancer cells, as well as targeted therapies that interfere with the growth um, signaling of the cancer cells and kill them in that way. Um, in, in basal cell carcinoma, um, typically the treatments that we use involve the, that targeted pathway where we block certain um, signals that, that contribute to their growth. And then with squamous cell carcinoma, which is one of the um, other more common skin cancers, um, immunotherapy, again, may be an option, although for certain people that may not be a consideration, in which case um, uh, both targeted therapies and other therapies, including chemotherapy, can be used. Um, so, you know, that's the uh, overall um, picture of, of how we treat the cancers, and I think we'll talk about that in, uh, uh, the details of that um, a little bit more with my colleague. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Khan. That was really outstanding and really um, gave people a very uh, excellent picture of really um, the role of the dermatologist and, and how um, um, and some of the various treatments and how important it is to detect the cancer early. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Kabajal, and Dr. Kabajal will be addressed, is Associate Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, Co-Leader Precision Oncology and Systems Biology Program, Director Experimental Therapeutics, Director Melanoma Service, Columbia University Herbert Irvine Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Kabajal will be addressing new treatment approaches, emerging role of precision medicine, biomarkers, and targeted therapy, and clinical trials, how research increases your treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kabashal. Dr. Mesner, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. Um, so I think what I'll do is I'll start off um, building on what Dr. Khan was speaking about, which is, um, you know, what, what do we do? What are our options if patients have a skin cancer or melanoma that comes back and can't be cut out or treated with radiation? And I can say, you know, 20 years ago, what we would have done is um, traditional chemotherapy. Um, you know, the chemotherapy that you think about when, uh, when people get cancer, where, where you can lose your hair or have side effects of decreased blood counts and so forth. Um, but I think what's been really remarkable in the melanoma and the skin cancer field is that, um, you know, today, based upon advances in terms of uh, immunotherapy, right, teaching the immune system to fight the cancer, or based off of the advances on what we call targeted therapy or precision oncology, uh, where we have therapies that shut down growth pathways that are specifically uh, important in people's cancer. It's, it's really uncommon that we use chemotherapy now. And so two of the broad categories of new treatment approaches I think is worth highlighting is one, immunotherapy and two, targeted therapy. And so I'll just spend a, a minute or two on each. You know, what, what is immunotherapy? Immunotherapy is, is basically um, you know, giving, administering a substance that somehow changes the way the immune system interacts with cancer, right? And as you can imagine, um, you know, cancers to grow have to develop ways to hide from the immune system, right? If they can't hide from the immune system, um, the cancer cells will be eliminated. And, um, you know, much like uh, bacteria, for instance, which can have different ways to evade um, antibiotics, right? And that's why we get antibiotic resistance bacteria, um, cancers have developed a number of different ways to hide from the immune system. 
in melanoma and a number of other cancers, uh, one of the um, dominant ways that the immune system hides from, uh, the cancer hides from the immune system is by coating itself with these proteins called PDL1, which act like as a shield against the immune cell. So even if an immune cell can get close to the melanoma cell, um, there's this interaction between that PDL1 protein, that shield, and, and PD1, which basically shuts down the immune cell so it can't function. And so now we have um, our standard therapies for melanoma, um, cutaneous squamous cell cancer, uh, and even basal cell cancer and, and another skin cancer called Merkel um, cell cancer um, it, are, are drugs that block that interaction and are incredibly effective. And in fact, in cutaneous melanoma, we're now curing patients even with widely metastatic melanoma uh, with some of these therapies. Um, <clears throat> again, I think, you know, the early development of these sorts of drugs were in um, cutaneous melanoma, but um, um, more recent studies have shown that these can work in these other skin cancers. Um, and so it's really just, you know, it's a standard now for, for patients if, if, if the, the cancer is spread. Um, now, it's important to note that there are other ways to um, modify the immune system. Uh, and even though there have been massive significant gains uh, with the PD-1-based therapies, um, there are other uh, treatments that we call immune agonists or uh, the tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapies or these bispecific therapies that function in different ways to help the immune system eliminate the cancer. Now, the other kind of bucket of therapies are, are what we call the targeted therapies. Um, and a number of um, the, uh, you know, a large part of the advances that have been made in, uh, for instance, again, cutaneous melanoma uh, is based on, off of the fact that about half of cutaneous melanomas have mutations in this gene called BRAF that leads to hyperactivation of this MAP kinase pathway, and if we shut down that growth pathway that the cancer cell is addicted to, um, then we can eliminate the cancer. Um, now, in people of color, um, the genomics, right, the type of genetic um, abnormalities that are driving the cancer that we find are different. Um, and that's because in, in people of color, they're less likely to develop, since in melanomas, melanomas on what we call the non-acral skin. Rather, uh, more commonly we'll see it on the palms of the hands, soles of the feet, under the fingernails, or, or we'll find melanoma in the mucosal surfaces of the body, as Dr. Wong said, in the mouth, um, the anorectal region, the vulvovaginal region. Um, and although they can have these BRAF mutations, um, there's a higher um, um, prevalence of these other, what we call drivers, in genes like KIT uh, or NRAS or TREK, and I, I say that because um, it's it really become standard of care um, to look for all of these alterations by what we call um, next generation sequencing of people's tumors. And so I, I would urge you know everyone on the call who's dealing with a cancer like this to, to ask our oncologists, should we be doing some sequencing of my tumor to see if there's a driver for which uh, we might have a particular target of therapy that might work. Now, moving on to clinical trials, I, you know, I would also urge everyone who's dealing with um, cancer to speak with our, their um, clinician, their, their oncologist, their treating team about clinical trials. Should I be thinking about clinical trials? And, and why is that? It's because, you know, although we've made major advances in melanoma, squamous cell, basal cell, you know, all our skin cancers, uh, we're still not curing everyone. And until, until we can cure everyone, we need to make better therapies. 
We need therapies that are well tolerated, right? That aren't making people sick and that can eliminate the cancer. And we're only gonna do that by um, evaluating these new targeted therapies or these new uh, ways to change the immune system. Um, and I would, I would highlight that, you know, clinical trials, the idea of that make people nervous, um, right? It's, it's experimental, right? We don't know. Um, and there are questions uh, that people frequently ask, like, you know, will, that, will I be getting a placebo? You know, I don't want to be a guinea pig. Um, and, and what I can say is in, in our cancer trials, um, everybody who's treated on, on our, our cancer clinical trials are getting at minimum the standard of care. They are getting, um, you know, what, what we would be doing outside of a clinical trial. And some patients, maybe all of them, might be getting something more. All right. Um, the clinical trial question, it's, it's, you know, it's a long discussion. And again, I, I would urge everyone just to speak with their, their oncologists about, um, about if, if this might be appropriate. So, Carolyn, I think I'll close it there. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Coverstall. That was really wonderful. And I think the concept of clinical trials is really important. And you're going to hear more about that as well during the Q&A as well. Um, I know it'll come up as questions there, but it, it's um, it's the only way the advances have been made in the treatment of all cancers, and so um, we can never encourage people enough about that. Um, actually, um, and so now um, our next speaker is Dr. Allison Beethoven Warner, and Dr. Uh, Beethoven is assistant attending physician, um, melanoma service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Beethoven will be addressing immunotherapy toxicities from the treatment of skin cancer and how to manage them, managing treatment side effects and discomfort, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Beethoven. Hi everyone, Allison Betzoff. Um, pleasure to be with you all today. Um, so I'm going to pick up where Dr. Carvajal uh, left off, and I'll start by talking about some side effects, common side effects of immunotherapy, um, and then we'll go into some other discussion that is really important to patient experience and patient care. So. Um, to start with immunotherapy, as Dr. Carvajal said, many, many paths in skin cancer lead to immunotherapy treatment, and so that's why we focus on that. Um, and just as Dr. Carvajal said, some of the chemo side effects that many of us are used to thinking about, uh, such as hair loss, nausea, vomiting, extreme fatigue, those are things that don't happen as often or really very frequently at all with immunotherapy. Instead, with immunotherapy, what we see is an overexcitement of the immune system that actually causes side effects. So when I explain this to my patients, I always say, you know, you want your immune system active, like, you know, a healthy adult running around, you want it looking for cancer cells and trying to kill cancer cells. An overactive immune system is something like you gave your three-year-old uh, too much sugar and they're running around and looking for things to do and looking for walls to bounce off of, right? And so in the immunotherapy setting, when we overstimulate the immune system, the immune cells are looking for cells to cause inflammation or areas to cause inflammation. And we can get inflammation pretty much anywhere. 
The most common places that we see this, you'll see inflammation of the bowel, so that typically causes diarrhea or something we call colitis. You'll see inflammation in the skin that can cause itching and rashes. Um, you can have inflammation of the lungs that can cause shortness of breath or a cough. Um, and really any organ can get inflamed. Um, we typically check your labs every time you come in. Um, in particular, we're looking for inflammation in the liver. That is another common site that can get inflamed. The good news is any of those types of inflammation can be treated. Um, typically, that is treated initially with steroids. It's typically high-dose steroids, which can be problematic for some people, particularly with diabetes. We can have to measure or manage blood sugar as well. Um, but that inflammation can be treated with a steroid taper. Now, I can't promise it will go away right away. Um, typically, some of these things will take weeks or even months to go away. But over time, that inflammation will go down. Um, there are very few, but some, potentially permanent side effects of immunotherapy. So um, one is whitening of patches of the skin called vitiligo. Uh, for people with darker pigmented skin, that can be more bothersome. That can occur on places like the face, unfortunately. Um, there are methods to deal with that with your dermatologist, um, but it's something we like to hear about and know about. Um, certainly, uh, particularly in darker pigmented individuals, because it's something we would want to get on top of early. Um, other more permanent side effects, so if any of the glands that produce hormones, so your thyroid gland, the pituitary gland in the brain, if any of those get inflamed, for whatever reason, I can give you all the steroid, knock down that inflammation, but they will stop making their hormones. And that typically is lifelong. That's a fixable problem. We simply give you hormone replacement, but it is typically lifelong hormone replacement. So these are important things to discuss with your doctor. Some people hear immunotherapy and hear that we're stimulating the natural immune system and assume that the side effects are minimal or none at all because it's a quote unquote natural process. Um, while this is very safe and we give these medicines every day, there certainly are side effects that you need to be aware of and that you need to discuss with your doctor, uh, you know, both before they happen so that we can catch them early. And if they do happen, uh, to be on top of them, because the sooner we catch these side effects, the easier they are to treat. Um, so I'm going to transition there to talking a little bit about the patient experience. Um, and what I typically tell my patients is, if it occurs to you, should I call my doctor to ask about X, right? The answer is typically yes, right? With immunotherapy uh, in particular, as I said, catching these side effects early is very important. So far too often I'll have patients say, oh, you know, I sat on this, I waited, I didn't want to bother you, it was overnight, and by the morning they're really feeling quite unwell, um, or by Monday morning because they waited through the weekend. So it's really important to reach out. Your doctors have coverage 24 hours a day for a reason, and it's because we want to help, but we can't fix a problem that we don't know about. Um, one typical way that we are handling this now, particularly in the sort of COVID era, is by telehealth. Um, and telehealth has really changed access for patients to doctors. And I think that's a really good thing. Uh, there are some downsides to telehealth as well and some things you need to be aware of. So 
first and foremost, it's really important to know that your doctor may be able to see you by telehealth, by video, but if there are specific complaints that they need to see physically, often that video is not high quality. So I often ask, for example, if a patient has a rash, for them to take a high quality picture with something like an iPhone and send it in to me before our video appointment. And that way I can get a better look and then we can discuss it by video call. Similarly, you actually have to have your video set up for us to be able to see you and properly assess you by telehealth. Um, it's really important that we actually can see the patient. I know that we are talking, but many physicians learn to really gauge the severity of symptoms by seeing a patient and seeing how they move and how they interact. Um, to that end, it's also important to know that sometimes it is really important to be seen in person. I, we're all aware that telehealth is much more convenient for patients, and in fact, many times it's much more convenient for providers as well. Um, but there are times where either due to the severity of an issue going on or for the need for a physical exam, your physician or practitioner will ask you to come into the office. Um, that is not a decision that is made lightly. That is not a decision that is made to inconvenience a patient. It is because we think there's something going on that requires in-person assessment. And I really encourage you to you know, heed that advice because I think it is very important at times to actually be physically seen by your provider. Um, whether you see a provider in person or you see them by telehealth, it is really important to go in with a list of questions or, and or concerns and make sure that you work your way all the way through that list um, to make sure that every question or concern that you have is addressed uh, before the end of that visit. So with that, I will wrap up. Also happy to take any questions at the end. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Beto. That was really excellent. Just an outstanding presentation. And there definitely will be questions to you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, and our, our next speaker is uh, Ms. Um, Amy uh, Marbo. And Ms. Marbo is um, uh, Education Officer, Melanoma Research Foundation. And um, she'll be addressing the free services and resources of the Melanoma Research Foundation. And she is our part organization on today's program. So I'm delighted to be working with um, Ms. Barbo on this program today. Ms. Barbo? Oh, thanks so much, Dr. Messner. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to participate in this uh, really important uh, conversation today. Uh, the information that all of the doctors just provided is so invaluable, and um, I really appreciate all of their efforts um, as well. As Dr. Messner said, my name's Amy Marbaugh. I'm the Education Officer at the Melanoma Research Foundation. And a brief history about the MRF. Uh, the foundation was founded in 1996 by a metastatic melanoma patient. Her name was Diana Ashby. She started the foundation with her husband in an effort to fund research grants for researchers and clinicians with the hope of finding new treatment options and hopefully a cure for melanoma. Diana's legacy lives on today, 26 years and several melanoma treatment options later. In my role, I oversee the creation of all of the MRF's educational content. We have a variety of learning opportunities, including a library of educational materials that's available in, uh, in both print and online, a webinar series entitled Ask the Expert, where we have monthly live webinars on a variety of topics important to patients, during which viewers can participate in a Q&A session. 
These sessions are also available on demand and can also be watched later. We also have patient meetings at cancer centers across the country that are offered in person and virtual to reach a wide audience. And finally, we have an animated video series, which is a highly visual learning opportunity that explains complex melanoma concepts and breaks them down into an easier way to understand. All of these opportunities can be found at the MRF's website, melanoma.org. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and our latest platform, TikTok. If you have any specific needs, you can please uh, feel free to reach out to me at education at melanoma.org. Again, thanks to Dr. Messner um, and Cancer Care for uh, allowing the MRF to participate in today's event. Oh, so wonderful to have you on board, um, Ms. Farfrey, an esteemed colleague, and really, um, I'm sure we'll do many more programs together. Whenever we do any melanoma or skin cancer program, we always involve the Melanoma Research Foundation. And now um, I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care. Um, so Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, it's staffed primarily, the services provided primarily by master's level trained oncology social workers, about 45 of them. And we do have a hope line. Um, it's an 800 number that people can call. And um, usually people would call during, uh, during the week. Usually it's Monday through Friday during business hours Eastern time and will usually call with a question and they the phone is picked up by an oncology social worker and they will then address their question and then review with them all the services that Cancer Care offers. So what are those services? Um, there are many, so I'm going to try to summarize them briefly. Um, we do offer, of course, support to people, um, to people coping with um, any type of cancer, melanoma as well. Um, we also do offer online support groups. Um, and people like those, they're very helpful to people. Um, we also offer um, practical financial and co-payment assistance, which is very invaluable to people um, in general, and particularly during the pandemic, there's been a great need for those services. Um, we also have a pet assistance program. So for people who have um, a cat or a dog and they are having difficulty maybe caring for it because of their cancer and need help, with someone to walk their dog or to um, take care of a litter box for the cat or get food for the for their pet, and we assist with those things. It's, a, it's been a, an important program for people who are struggling with these issues. Um, we also have a case management unit, and those are a staff, and we don't have the service or resource that you need. They will virtually take you to an organization that will meet your need. For example, some people have issues around a food insecurity, not having enough money for food or for housing, let's say for mortgage or rental payments or just housing in general. So they will help you um, until that problem is resolved, but they will be with you along the way as you um, contact different organizations to get help. So you, you won't be just given a list of places to call. They will come with you um, so you won't be alone in, in dealing with getting that help. And we also offer these workshops, about 75 of them per year, on different types of cancer topics and um, different types of cancer types, types, different types of cancer, like today's program. Um, and um, we also offer publications. It gives you a thumbnail sketch of the services we offer. And now, just before we move on to the Q&A, um, I'm just going to ask you um, just a few questions. Um, and for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to respond and rate your answers to the questions. 
So as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of types of skin cancers in people of color and new treatment approaches. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of regular visits to the dermatologist and early detection of skin cancer for people of color. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to care for skin during cancer treatments, including sun and wind safety recommendations for people of color. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. Our next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to use the tips and suggestions of the healthcare team to prevent and manage treatment side effects, toxicities, discomfort, and pain of skin cancer in people of color. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I've learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of participating in clinical trials as a treatment option for skin cancer in people of color. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. And now we have time for your questions for our speakers. And so I'm going to ask Grace to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and also I'm going to ask um, Grace to bring all of our speakers on board for these questions. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question at this time, please press star and 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. So it's an interesting question um, for Dr. Wong. Do certain um, um, people of color see highest rates of certain types of skin cancer? Yeah, thank you. That's an interesting question. Um, I think it comes down to what we call subgroups of uh, patients. And uh, there are certain situations which put people at higher risk. Um, Certainly, from the point of view of skin cancers, which are related to excessive sun exposure, the, the rates are, of course, naturally lower. However, in each of the skin cancers that we have spoken about today, there are ancillary risk factors. Uh, uh, examples include um, immunosuppression, either as a result of uh, having a pre-existing autoimmune issue or being or having to be on medicines that modulate or change the immune system, that is, you know, that puts people at a different risk category. Um, and so the details in this situation matters, uh, which is probably the best way to answer this question. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, this uh, next question, um, 
for Dr. Khan, are certain body parts more at risk for patients of color? Yeah, so um, I think Dr. Uh, Dr. Wong was kind of alluding to this in his um, presentation as well, and that um, you know, like when we when we talk about melanoma, um, uh, we know that um, people of color um, have higher rates of developing what we call acral melanoma, which develops um, on the palms and soles or under the nail bed, um, and and so certainly that's something that we more commonly see. Of course, it's still quite rare, um, and so it's not something that we see commonly overall, but in terms of um, melanomas that develop in people of color, that is, um, uh, there is a higher incidence of that. Um, uh, and, and I think kind of extrapolating from that, um, I think we see that although there is a lesser risk, not, not zero, but lesser risk of um, chronic UV damage-related skin cancers in people of color, um, uh, as a result, we see more um, skin cancers that develop in non-sun exposed areas of the body. Um, and so um, it's important to keep that in mind um, when we're doing um, skin exams, either um, personally or um, under the care of a dermatologist to make sure that we look at those areas as well. Excellent, thank you. Um, and. Um Another question for um, so for Dr. Kavajal, um since symptoms are not as easily visible in people of color, how can one be proactive about screening and getting checked? Yes, that's that's a great question. You know, they're not, to be honest, specific specific guidelines. I think. You know, we, we counsel all of our patients to do, um, you know, skin self exams. Um, I think I think if this is done, you know, at a monthly basis, that's uh, that's actually quite a lot. But I think it's important to just keep an eye on any spot that looks kind of abnormal, and we call it just like an ugly duckling thing, just something that looks a little bit different than other spots you might have on your skin. Um, uh, you know, if something is there. Um, you know, if you see an abnormal spot, I would keep an eye on that. See your dermatologist. Um, you know, clearly, if things are changing or what we call evolving, right? If there's a spot that that's growing, begins to bleed, um, becomes painful or itchy or otherwise bothersome, you know, I would just, you know, have a, a low threshold to go and see a dermatologist. And, and the key is just to, you know, don't ignore things. If things aren't going away, I would I would see a dermatologist. Excellent advice. Okay, so please keep that in mind, everyone. That's really an important takeaway, very important. Um, and for Dr. Batov, um, are there certain medications that contribute to risk factors for persons of color for skin cancer? Um, in terms of developing skin cancer, um, I, I will defer to my, uh, my my colleagues, and particularly Dr. Wong, um, I think when we think about you know the the risk of side effects with um, you know with any of the treatments, certainly it's really important to speak to your physician about um, any interaction of any medication you may be taking, whether that's over the counter or a prescription medication 
or something as simple as, you know, an herbal or a tea. I think that there are, um, you know, many interactions out there uh, that, that we all need to be really aware of, particularly um, things that can, you know, cause inflammation um, due to ingredients that we're not aware of. Um, in terms of uh, increasing the risk of actually developing a skin cancer, I, I think I'll pass that to my colleague, Dr. Wong. Dr. Wong, do you want to comment on that? <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Warner. Well, I think one way of interpreting the question is, you know, what are the medications that have to be careful about if, <clears throat> that they may put you at risk. And I think it's quite clear now that, that our immune system provides a counterbalance to the development of cancer, and this is maybe particularly important in skin cancers. So we, we tend to be very careful in situations in which we're using medications that can change the way the immune system acts. There are people who, uh, by uh, sort of bad luck of being born with it, have issues with autoimmunity, uh, where their immune system is attacking their, their own body. And so uh, individuals like that have to, by necessity, go on medications that suppress the immune system. Uh, and then we, and those people are uh, have to be sort of watched more carefully than the general population because we have lowered the barrier that prevents cancer com- from coming through. So think of it like a seawall that prevents the tides from coming in and flooding onto your house. You know, if you lower that barrier, it doesn't always mean that your house will get flooded, but the risk is higher. Likewise, for any modulatory type of uh, medicines, there are a whole host of them out there now that are used for treatment of a variety of inflammatory conditions. The list is too long to mention here. Uh, but those patients who are on it know it because, uh, because these are the type of things their doctors will monitor for. Um, so in, in general, the concept is that anything that modulates the immune system, either way, up, down, or sideways, uh, are deserving of attention. And perhaps the most obvious group, just before I leave this topic, are folks that are, have solid organ transplants. By necessity, we have to uh, blunt the immune system to avoid rejection, and these are, in, in fact, individuals that we need to have increased vigilance for. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Khan. What are sunspots and when should I seek help? Well, recently I've been getting brown spots on my cheeks after traveling to sunnier places. Yeah, so um, I, I will I will add a caveat that I'm not a dermatologist, but I think, um, you know, in general, sunspots um, uh, or, you know, lightly pigmented spots that develop on sun-exposed areas after kind of intense sun exposure, you know, we think of them as, as benign um, uh, uh, findings. Um, but um, if you're worried at all about any sort of change um, uh, or, uh, or concerning findings on your skin, um, I think it doesn't hurt at all to have it um, checked out by a dermatologist, uh, get that confirmation, and then have them potentially give you tips on how to avoid that in general. And, um, you know, just as a plug, you know, we've, we've, we've spoken about the relatively decreased incidence of sun-related skin cancers, but that doesn't mean that they can't develop and that it doesn't, it doesn't mean that there can't be other um, changes associated with chronic sun damage. And so using um, uh, sunscreen is still important and um, I know can also reduce the incidence of sunspots. Um, and so um, that's, that's an important point. But um, uh, generally, sunspots um, are considered
considered you know, benign, but um, uh, I would have a low threshold to just have it checked out. And actually, is it, uh, it's kind of what your comment fits into a, a question that is uh, what, how um, should people of color be using sunscreen when they're out in the sun? Is that? Uh, yeah, in short, the you know the the answer is yes. Um, again, the the risk of, of sun associated uh, sun damage associated skin cancers is lower, but um, there still is benefit from using sunscreens. And I know um, you know certain types of sunscreens can be um, more more difficult to use um, uh, when uh, with darker um, pigmented skin. Um, but there are um, different types um, that that are um, better in terms of the residue that they leave and the appearance that they have. Um, and so, you know, finding a sunscreen that works for you is still very important. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our speakers. And this has been an amazing uh, program, I have to say. You've all been terrific. Um, we This is a the first time we've offered this program, but not the last. And I would say that based on the questions that our participants asked and our speakers really being so responsive to your questions, um, um, this has been just a phenomenal program. And I do want to thank everyone for participating. Um, the speakers and the participants really made this a very special program. And I want to also acknowledge that we could go on for another hour because indeed there are many more questions in queue. Everyone didn't get to ask their questions and so I want to relate to that right away. For those of you who um, were able to ask a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who are thinking of a question you'd like to ask, we'd like you to take all of, all of you, go back to your treating healthcare team and ask them the questions that you asked today and because they know you the best. They know all about your health history, and and I also um, hope that this will focus more on on your on your skin, which may be an area that you haven't maybe focused on as much. And we'd like you to, in terms of uh, you know um, skin cancer as a potential issue, it may not be an issue for everyone, but still, if any change, anything occurs on your skin, that you want to be sure you bring it that you have a dermatologist that you see on a regular basis. That's really important, and you can talk to your primary care doctor about that, that's important, or your skin cancer doctor about that, but there should be um, someone um, that is following your skin and any concerns you have about your skin. Now that things are opening up a bit, people are seeing their doctors on a more regular basis, uh, please put this on your radar screen along with everything else that you might be concerned about. It's really important. Um, and um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. In coping with skin cancer, I want you to now know that you have access to cancer care. Teda's um, Melanoma Research Foundation as a research uh, as a resource as well. And I'll be at the end of today's program. Well, actually, tomorrow you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation of the program. And in that evaluation, you'll be getting um, uh, information about any resource we mentioned in the program today, any website, any phone number that you can contact to get additional help. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop on Immunatis Connect. Have a great day, everyone.